Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group, uh, talking to you today live from Chicago. Uh, with me are my two co-hosts, uh, Jim Marty uh, from Colorado and Rob Hunt, who's typically from Southern California, but once again this week finds himself uh, uh, somewhere on the road and in, in other parts of the state. Jim, how are you doing today? Very good. It's a beautiful blue sky day here in Colorado, and um, we got lots of exciting things to talk about, so let's just jump right into it. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, some exciting news out of the state of New York with uh, Governor Cuomo signing a cannabis bill. Uh, we're going to talk yep. about the 50th anniversary of Skull and Roses and some famous March 1990 Grateful Dead concerts. So we got lots on the agenda. Now let's jump in. Excellent. Well, good. Let's uh, say hello to our uh, other co-host, Rob Hunt from, uh, gosh, Rob, I don't know where you are today, but I'm sure it's somewhere fun and exciting. Beautiful Monterey, California, and I'm in a, uh, a Type 7 extraction lab, which in California is, is tough to find. So it's a good place to be looking at uh, different extracts and different oils. Um, but wow, what a big day for cannabis today with Cuomo signing the bill and, and how exciting it is that, uh, that we are here discussing it um, on the day it happened. I think the bill was signed no more than four hours ago. So uh, really exciting news for the cannabis industry. Well, you're, you're a native New Yorker, are you not? I am a native New Yorker, and I, I watched this market you know, for the last uh, 10 years. And you know, I was raising a, um, a private equity fund in New York at the time that they signed the initial bill for medicinal. And at the time, I had no interest in investing any money in that, in that state simply because the law wasn't uh, conducive to actually attract customers. And it didn't allow for flour, and it didn't allow for a lot of other things. And, if anyone knows the New York market in cannabis, you know, the illicit market and delivery is still king. And to try to drive that market out, you're not going to do it by not being able to sell flour. So whatever's happened in New York, you know, call for the last six years, it's basically been a waste of time. And most of the companies that have those licenses have all been waiting until uh, adult use legalization happened because they've been putting up uh, losses now for, you know, five straight years. So even though the license has value, uh, because ultimately we all knew this would be legalized, it's been a very, very tough road for the licensees in that state, while the illicit market has just flourished um, in the same way it has for years. Like New York still swallows up everything California can send across the country. New York still takes all of it. And uh, much like Chicago for years, you know, Chicago now, you're at least seeing legalization make an impact. But New York has not seen that impact yet. And it probably won't now for another 18 months based on the legislation that was just passed. Well, and let me say, I think you're right. And, and Illinois was the same way. The Illinois uh, medical market was horrible. And really the people uh, in the medical market were there, you know, kind of serving as placeholders, trying to get themselves uh, to adult use. And they've done that. Uh, Jim, let me ask you, you know, you're our, you're our financial guy here. You know, you, you saw, you saw Colorado come online firsthand. Uh, you've seen this happen all over the place. Uh, in Illinois, everybody was really excited because they said, oh, it's the second most populous state after California to have adult use. Well, Illinois has now knocked them off that perch. What, 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 do, you, what do you see as the early signs of things that are going to happen in the uh, New York market? And, you know, and, and what are your thoughts on it? Well, there's two big um, shoes to drop. Is it going to be limited licenses <clears throat> or unlimited licenses? Uh, Colorado has met and exceeded its tax revenue and we're an unlimited licensed state. Um, California, although it is an unlimited licensed state, so many of the counties have opted out that it's very limited there, and the um, illicit market still flourishes in California. Uh, even a lot of the retail shops aren't actually properly licensed. So, of course, those shops aren't going to be paying any taxes. But we'll see what New York does. If they keep it to the 8 or 10 that they have now, 
they're not going to get to where they need to be. Okay. Rob, let me ask you this. Who's going to get the uh, the dispensary in uh, um, Port Chester, right down the street from the uh, Capitol <laughs> Theater and by the place where you guys would go for your post-show munchies? Yeah, look, the, the, the Pat's Hubba Hubba um, dispensary, uh, where you get your chili cheeseburger, chili cheese fries, and uh, hopefully now a, a half gram vape cart. Uh, look, I've, I've got no idea, but I'd like to think that, you know, Cuomo's going to open this up to a, a much wider group of applicants. I think the prevailing belief is that it's not going to be concentrated in the same 10 licensees that there are today. But competition for whoever's going to get the new licenses, I think it's going to be fierce. And I've got to think there's going to be a large social equity component coming to New York based on the trends that we're seeing in other major cities. So if, if Portchester is a harbinger of things to come, uh, I would expect that you know Portchester being a relatively, um, I wouldn't say a poor community, it's still Westchester, but it's certainly one of the the you know less um, well uh, capitalized areas. You know, being right in between Greenwich and Rye with tons of money, I would think Portchester would be you know well in line for someone that's going to be an equity applicant to get a license there. And I heard, if I'm not mistaken, that the New York statute already right from the get-go allows for home delivery and for the creation of smoking lounges. Yeah, I mean, it's going to have to. I mean, you have to think that those things already exist um, on the illicit market and have for a long time. And it's, it's a very, very open secret that there's smoking lounges already in the city. And I think you guys probably already know the names of a few of them if you haven't already been to one. I, mean, I sure have. Uh, and then on the delivery side... You know, the delivery market has been one of the most efficient markets of, of any, you know, cannabis market in the, in the world for years. So, you know, if you think about what the number of licensees, I mean, you know, Jim, you and I watched Colorado pop up in the, the heyday of Colorado. There was, you know, 30 stores on, uh, on Broadway when we used to call it Broadsterdam. You know, New York would take a thousand retail stores and it's still not enough between the five boroughs. So, you know, if, if they don't think that, you know, people are going to continue to use delivery as the primary means of accessing the cannabis market in New York City uh, after legalization, um, they're, they're sorely mistaken. So it's got to be a very, very robust delivery service in uh, especially like in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens uh, for this thing to work. Delivery's got to be king. Well, going back to Colorado where I have the most familiarity. You know, we have over 1,200 active licenses. We're a relatively small state population-wise, very large geographically, but only 6.5 million people, 3.5 million adults, and yet uh, our 1,200 stores are thriving. Uh, the cultivators are happy. I think we're at about $1,800 a pound on average at wholesale and double and triple that at retail. So the Stores are profitable, the wholesalers are profitable, the cultivation and extraction is profitable. And uh, as I mentioned before, it's an unlimited licensed state with a fairly small population. So people love cannabis, and it's really been a big winner on, the, on COVID. Uh, people have been staying home so they can consume more. They're consuming more alcohol. They're consuming more cannabis. Uh, so, you know, on the winners and losers on <clears throat> COVID, certainly bars, restaurants, airlines, hotels are really on the wrong side of the equation. But the cannabis industry and the liquor industry have really uh, landed on the other side of the uh, equation. Yep. It, it, it's pretty amazing to see how that's happened. And, uh, you know, I guess it's not really surprising and it's nice. And uh, look, it, 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 I always found it hard to believe that how could how could the cannabis industry be taken seriously by anybody without a presence in New York City? I mean, you know, love it, hate it, you know, and those of us in Chicago have mixed feelings about it, certainly. 
But at the end of the day, I mean, New York City is the, you know, the, the, the real capital of the United States. That's where all the business takes place. That's where everybody goes. That's where all the diversity and all the culture, all the music, all the art, all everything is in New York City. And I even remember uh, back when I was in college being able to go and, uh, you know, buy a dime bag in uh, Washington Square Park. Yeah, Washington Square Park, Bryant Park, you know, you name the park. Yeah, my buddy took me over to Broadway and we went to go see some cheesy movie just so we could sit in the balcony and do bong hits the whole time. You know, and he was like, oh, yeah, this is New York, man. You can do anything here. And, you know, for a while, they actually flipped that over and they, they made it really difficult to enjoy marijuana in a lot of places in New York. So I'm happy that this is out. Okay. I'm happy that this is a thing and it'll, it, it should be nice for everybody. Well, let, let's be realistic here. New York is the single most important cannabis market in the world. You know, it's, it, it, certainly in the United States. And if you want to talk about, you know, the New York Metro, it's even more so when you, you know, take into account, uh, you know, New Jersey and Connecticut and Long Island you know, all the way out towards like, you know, Hempstead, Long Island, that that metro is a massive, massive metro. And, and I'll add to that, that it's also, you know, the most important market. I mean, right now, I'd say L.A. is the most important market in the world. And as a single market, California, it certainly is. But New York City uh, is probably the most discerning palette of any group out there. I mean, like New Yorkers have always been willing to overpay for product uh, as long as it's fire. If you're bringing the best product in there, they'll pay for it. Uh, if you brought product in from California, if there's a period of time before sweets, no one wanted, it had to be sours. You know, if you were bringing in the wrong vape cart, they didn't want it. You know, the dealers in that, in that city for, have been so savvy for so long that anyone that's making product on the illicit market or the outlaw market, I mean, those guys are as good at their craft as anyone in the legal market. And if you want to make it in this industry, like if, if you can't, if you can't win over New York and, and I don't mean this in this disrespectful way to Chicago, but Chicago is a little different where it's swallowed up, you know, anything that California sent their way. There wasn't a time where people like, yeah, I don't want it. You know, someone would show up with a, a truck with 100 pounds in it. There was no one in Illinois that's going like, I reject it. In New York, they'd be like, yeah, I don't care what you do with it. But it's not coming here. We don't, you know, I can't sell this. And that's the way the market's been for a long, long time. So I, I agree, you know, having a presence in New York is absolutely mission critical. And if you think about what this is going to do in terms of optics and in terms of saying, okay, we're really going to try to drive out the, uh, the legacy market in favor of a new legal market. Cuomo, like today's signature was was step one, but it's certainly not even close to telling the whole story until they actually decide how many new licensees there's going to be. And until we have, you know, on a per capita average, something very, very similar to what Jim was describing in Colorado, where, you know, call for every 30 or 40,000 people in New York, there should be at least one one point of access on a dispensary. Because if not, you are not going to stamp out such a well-entrenched illicit market that has just been so well-developed for so long, run by some really savvy, smart individuals. I just remember hearing stories when I was in college, you know, from my buddies who grew up in New York about, uh, you know, they, they, they'd tell stories about certain addresses in Harlem where you would drive up, you'd run in, there'd be like a ticket booth, but with everything all blocked up, you'd slip your $5 through, they'd slip you out a, a nickel bag and you'd be on your way, you know. And for a kid growing up in St. Louis who didn't really have a lot of exposure to that stuff, you know, it all sounded you know, almost, you know, pretty cool that, you know, this, this kind of, this kind of thing even existed. And so, yeah, I do think it is great that, uh, that New York, like everywhere, you know, as you go legal and, and you can really integrate it into your society and make it uh, 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 an important part of the city. And I would love that. I'm sure I have no doubt that, you know, all of a sudden the, the hottest consumption lounges will be in Manhattan and, you know, all of this kind of stuff and good, that will help give it the publicity it needs to really help normalize it overall. And, uh, you know, it's a tipping point well, in my opinion. The other thing they have to watch out for is that they don't overtax it because that'll, 
perpetuate the illicit market like <clears throat> it has in California. You know, 40% sales tax at the counter uh, on a $10 joint, you're paying $15. That doesn't work. Um, you know, here in Colorado, we do have some sin taxes. So out the door, you're looking at about a 20% sales tax all in. And basically, all of the um, illicit dealers are out of business. People in Colorado go to the market. Um, the former drug dealers, the marijuana dealers are looking for other occupations. Um, the big complaint the, the feds have here in Colorado is because we do have so much cultivation, there's illicit cultivation that ships out of state. Now, there's no market for illicit pounds inside of Colorado. A, a licensed dispensary <clears throat> would never pay you know, a black market or illicit market dealer for a pound of marijuana. But you get over to Kansas or Oklahoma or really even Illinois, New York, um, you can you know, triple your, your price for those pounds. Yeah, Jim, it's funny you bring up the, uh, the tax side of it because uh, it, Cuomo actually did announce it. So it's only a 9% state tax and then a, another 4% municipal tax. So it's not an overly restrictive tax coming out of New York the way it is in some other states. So I think he got that one relatively right. And then, Larry, I want to touch on something you said as far as, you know, the stories you hear about what New York used to be in the old days and kind of the, uh, the sketchy buildings. But there used to be a handful of places that we used to go from Westchester into uh, the Bronx to, to go buy weed when we were in high school. And some of these places, like there was a place in the South Bronx that the Shower Posse, the Jamaican gang that uh, you know is notorious, they ran on a one-way street where literally there was, you know, two guys out front, one holding a bag full of dime bags, one holding a bag full of like half ounces. And uh, there'd be like three or four guys uh, behind a wrought iron gate, all holding, you know, automatic weapons that would be sitting there. And if they're lying down the street where they had a, a runner, you know, at the end of the corner was watching every single, you know, make sure no cops came down that street and a runner at the other end. But it would just be like, you know, you just walk up and be like, how many men? You'd be like six. And they'd just be like, you know, knock them out. And that was the New York of the old days, you know. So uh, anything is a huge, huge improvement from, you know, 16-year-old, 17-year-old kids going to the, you know, sketchy parts of the Bronx to buy cannabis. And, you know, I think the new New York market should eliminate almost all of that um, in, in one fell swoop if they do this properly. I hear you. Jim, you had something to say. You had a story to tell us. I have a couple of federal updates um, on the showing that this is not a partisan issue. Um, Senator Rand Paul, Republican but very libertarian, has been a great supporter of our industry for several years. Um, he's been a personal friend of mine for about 10 years. I visit him when I'm in uh, D.C. And um, he and his wife, Kelly, reached out to me to see if I would like to go skiing with them in Aspen last weekend. And it just so happened I had enough miles with United that I had a free flight Denver to Aspen, a 25-minute flight with my ski gear. And, uh, yeah, he's a snowboarder, and uh, he's very good, actually. He he goes very slow, but he doesn't fall. And we had a great time together. And he on the chairlift, we had a few good conversations, and he said, uh, you know, I think we'll get safe banking. We should be able to get the Safe Banking Act through Congress. But he said, don't look for federal legalization anytime soon. Um, it, he said Congress just is not there. It's not a priority. Um, there's a lot of people who would oppose it. Uh, so you're not going to get to the level of support you're going to need to pass a bill that could get President Biden's signature. And then uh, back to how it's not a partisan issue, I was surprised to see an article and um, that the Biden administration is dismissing White House staffers for past cannabis use. I don't know if you saw that article. I did see that article. And um, look, I'm not going to 
hold back any punches on this. I'm I'm sorely disappointed by that. I think it, you know, whether Biden, you know, wants to be the president that oversees the legalization of marijuana on a federal level or doesn't want to be the one who oversees it on the federal level, I, I think we're long past the time where this should be the kind of thing back in the day, right, where they said, well, if you smoke marijuana, you're a security risk to the country, so we can't have you around kind of nonsense. Um, and, you know, look, I'm sure that he has his reasons and they are what they are. Um, but I think it, it sends entirely the wrong message at a time when we're desperately trying to push a message of normalization. And I was very, very surprised to see that. Yeah, it's a real shame for those young people who um, now are basically out of work with a, a taint on their record. Uh, so, yeah, a real shame. But um, as far as federal legalization goes, you know, for our clients and the and the industry as we know it today, as we've talked many times on this uh, Deadhead Cannabis show, federal legalization may not be the best thing for the industry as it currently exists. The fact that every state is a silo gives our clients some protection against uh, the large corporate interests coming in and basically wiping them out. I always use the example of uh, cigarettes, maybe not the best example in the world, but Back in the 50s and 60s, when we were kids growing up, at least I was a kid growing up, you know, there was dozens of brands of cigarettes. Today there's two, basic Marlboros and Winstons. Right. Um, so anyway, but back to Aspen, uh, did some great shopping, got some spectacular uh, cannabis, um, and pretty good deal, five, uh, five pre-rolls of very good flour for out the door, $25. I was with a local and uh, she let me use some of her, po- her frequent, fl- uh, frequent buyer points. And so uh, even though we were in probably one of the most expensive towns in the United States, the, the cannabis was still very reasonably priced. Does, uh, does Senator Paul get a congressional discount? <laughs> I tried to put a tour together of him and his staff, but they were on a very tight schedule and they, were, they had to fly out the next morning. So I had arranged a tour at one of our really good okay. clients who I'll plug, uh, the Green Dragon. Um, they have 15 stores in Colorado, and they're expanding they're into into Florida. Very good operators. They harvest 900 pounds a week, and sell every gram of it in their own stores. So, uh, hats off to the the Green Dragon, a great operator here in Colorado. Well, I think that we're at a point, guys, where as much as there is to talk about marijuana, and I would be remiss if I didn't just throw in, and I'm not trying to be the the buzzkill in all of this, but I think it's important to acknowledge that tomorrow, April 1st, besides April Fool's Day and the 41st anniversary of the, the dead mixing up their instruments and surprising everybody like we talked about last week, Also, unfortunately, it also marks the one-year anniversary of when the Illinois, uh, first round of Illinois adult use dispensary licenses were supposed to be issued. And we're a year out now. They still have not been issued. Um, And even worse, we still don't even have a a, a real time frame as to when they're going to be issued. There's been progress. There's been talk. There's been compromise. There's been negotiation. There's been lots of litigation. Uh, But at the end of the day, it's hard. And, and, you know, the people don't... uh, take into account all of the expenses that these applicants have to carry during this period of time, primarily contingencies on real estate, whether they're going to buy or they're going to lease and landlords who are saying, Hey, it's been a year. You owe me a lot more money. Now 
if you want me to maintain, you know, your right to this property, uh, you know, trying to get deals on equipment that they, you know, had hoped by this time they would know whether or not they need, trying to make deals with people to come in and be their talent and be their, their master growers or help them, you know, have sk- breaks in their schedules to be able to come in and help them set up their dispensaries. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, 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 it seems to still be almost in total disarray. Um, I've got people calling me because by statute, they're supposed to have another round of applications in December of this year, but at the rate they're going, you know, we can't even get this first round finished. So, uh, at the same time, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Illinois had over a billion dollars in cannabis sales, uh, in, uh, 2020. So we are a very, very robust market. Uh, there is tremendous opportunity to be had in Illinois and there will be for a long time to come. Uh, but for the, the the applicants, it's just very frustrating, and uh, it would be wonderful if we could uh, stop celebrating anniversaries and just get those licenses issued. But let's move on to much better topics like the Grateful Dead, and in particular, uh, Rob, I know we were talking, and uh, you're very good at these kind of things, and you were quick to point out uh, that here we are at the end of March, beginning of April, and it marks the anniversary of two uh, uh, very famous and very, very impressive uh, Grateful Dead runs on the East Coast in the spring tour. Yeah, I mean, the end of March is always, you know, back in the in the day, it was always the time my East Coasters looked forward to because uh, that meant spring tour was happening in the Northeast. And, uh, you know, kind of during my era from the late 80s into the early 90s, uh, a lot of the best shows were happening in the Northeast in the 90s. So um, or during that period. So the ones I'd point to, you know, the, the ones that I sort of, the tapes I wore out to death, would be, you know, today is March 31st. I can think of three great March 31st shows, and one of them being March 31st, 1988 from the Brendan Byrne Arena, which I, I would say arguably is one of the best out-of-space, um, you know, runs with, a, I'm pretty sure you came out of space with one of the best going down the roads I've ever heard into a fancy, uh, into a miracle fancy Jude watchtower. And if anyone's listened to that watchtower, it's the one where Bobby really slows it down and in the middle is like, wait a minute, wait a minute, <laughs> this is to drink my wine, and like just totally like changes the flow of it but that uh that out of space was you know straight fire and then 331 in 1990 was the night after the Brantford Marsalis show uh from Uniondale New York from the Nassau Coliseum and that was a, a tremendous uh helps of Franklin's to open the first set um and that was you know not too far after they brought helps of Frank's back in October of 1989 and then um 331.91 which we discussed on the eyes of the world show when we talked about to, uh, to, to mark that day was you know the 23 minute eyes so march 31st the day we're recording was traditionally just an amazing amazing um time for them but you know i think that looking back at uh at those brendenburg shows and at those um uh uniondale long island shows you know two of the the best runs for new yorkers to say you know great three night runs well they they sound great i you know and and obviously i'm familiar with the 90 run with branford um, and, and, you know, the impact he had at the, on that show and everything, like we talked about on the Eyes of the World show, you know, changed my view, uh, not changed my view, enhanced my view of Eyes of the World forever. It, it just, and it still to this day leaves me with this nagging question of why didn't they have a guy, a sax guy touring with them on a regular basis, like the Stones did with Carl Dunson, right? It would have been such a natural fit to have a sax player be able to just pop out and play with it. It enhanced it all so much. It was just... It was absolutely wonderful, and it was great to see. Um, I like uh, uh, when you're talking about, uh, you know, Bobby with the wait a minute. 
because, you know, that's a classic Bobby move, you know, and, and he, he likes to do it a lot on Gloria, right? When they're, when they're spelling out the letters of the name and about halfway through, he'll be like, oh, wait a minute. And they all stop for a minute. And then he, he dives back into it. Uh, and, uh, it, 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 you know, it's one of his little, you know, showmanship moves that I was always actually very fond of. Cause you know, it's just, he's, he's having a good time up there and he's leading the band the way he wants to lead them. And, you know, everybody's going along for the ride and, uh, and that's great. So yeah, I mean, spring tour though, for me, spring tour was always Hampton, uh, Hampton. And then they'd eventually they'd make their way to Chicago and we'd see them at, mm-hmm. uh, the Rosemont horizon. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and those were great places, but I never made it out to the East coast, you know, for, uh, uh, well, actually that's not true. And one year I did that, but in, in upstate New York, I caught a bunch of shows, uh, in, uh, uh Syracuse and in, uh, Rochester, uh, and Binghamton, I think one year, but I never made it, uh, you know, to, to any of these other places. I never made it to Nassau or, uh, um, any place like that. And, and, you know, that's what the tapes are for. So it's always great to listen. And I got guys like you to tell me the stories. Well, um, it's not, uh, one of my most familiar, uh, periods, but I believe there was the two keyboards at that time with, uh, Bruce Hornsby and Vince Welnick. Is that the shows that you're discussing? No, the, uh, the, those were actually um, 88 at Brendan Byrne was, uh, was just Brent. 90 was, uh, was just Brent as well. Yeah. And uh, in 91 was the first year. That, that year at, um, at Greensboro was Hornsby and Vince. But the other two, you know, the other two big runs were, uh, were just Brent's. That's right, because Brent passed away in July of 90. Yep, exactly. Do we, wait, wait, do we even have to say it? Brent passed away in 90 after playing a show in Chicago. Exactly. Jerry passed away in 94 after playing a show in Chicago. I know it sucks. We're really nervous about that. Whenever Philip comes to town, we put out an alert. But Yeah, Tinley Park and Soldier Field. Yes. So, yeah, uh, so yeah that, that Nassau run in 90, I mean, obviously it's famous because of the, uh, the Brantford night. But, you know, the other two nights were pretty amazing as well. And 328-90 was the first time they played high time in a long time in the first set. It was also the first time they ever played the weight uh, in the second set. Mm. So, you know, that, that was a huge breakout for anyone that's, a, you know, a fan of the band. That was a big one. And as I said, you know, the 331, um, you know, it was maybe only the fifth time that since they brought back uh, Helps of Franklin's. You know, so it was, a, you know, really, really big all the way around. And just the sound quality, if you were to point back and say, you know, when people talk about the nineties, not being you know, a great time for the dead, I challenge anyone to listen to those three nights from Nassau and not say all three nights of them were, were pretty damn good. Oh, I have no doubt. And it's funny. You mentioned high time, high time. You know, we all have our songs that no matter how many shows we go to, we never heard. It took me 85 shows to catch a high times. Literally. I, I, I would, I would be there the night before I'd be there the night after. Uh, it didn't matter. I, I was catching everything else, but I never caught a high times. And finally, uh, in Las Vegas, Jim, Las Vegas 92, uh, one of the shows they, they played a high times. And my buddies were funny because all of a sudden everybody's like, where's Michigan? Where's Michigan? <laughs> they're, they're playing height. And sure enough, there it was. And it was great. It was fun to hear. But it was just one of those things. And then a few months later, I caught a show at in Chicago and took a buddy of mine who had never seen a show before, loved high times. And they played it that night. He's like, oh, yeah, I caught it in my first show. I'm like, well, that's that's the thing about the dead. You just never know. It's so funny. I mean, Jim, I could ask you as well. Like, any any songs, Jim, that eluded you throughout the whole time you saw them that you're like, how can I never catch that one? It was always played the night before or the show after. Uh, any ones no, you just kept missing? Uh, I was always a glass half full guy, and I was so happy to get some of my favorites, Uncle John's Band and Sugar Mag. And I was, uh, in Las, I was at the 92 Las Vegas show, so I did catch a high time. 
But um, no, we always had a lot of fun walking into the shows, making predictions, and then walking out of the, I told you they were going to do an Uncle John's. Yeah, absolutely. And the other one that that they, well, two other ones, one they played um, Casey Jones periodically during the time that I saw them, and I never caught a Casey Jones. There, There weren't a lot of them, but there were some, and I just was never in the right place for that. And then much to the dismay of a number of my best buddies who were a lot of East Coast deadhead guys, uh, and let's see if you can catch the significance of the date on this one, Rob. They were all at my uh, wedding rehearsal dinner on September 3rd, 1988, which would have been a show at the Cap Center. Yeah, 938, played Ripple. Played Ripple, there you go, second encore Ripple, an electric Ripple, no less. And all these guys who would have been at the show were at my rehearsal dinner, and I never heard the end of that. Yeah, and from my understanding, that was a Make-A-Wish Foundation request. Yep, that's the story I heard too. But the but the even worse story was all the uh, um, you know guys who sold their T-shirts who all blew out right at the end of the second set when they heard what, what I've, I don't remember what the first encore was, U.S. Blues or something, and they were all in the parking lot wondering why nobody was coming out to buy their stuff, you know. And word got out to them, and they all tried to come running back in to catch as much of it as they could. And I always say you can't leave until they turn the lights on. So, so that's really funny you say that, Jim, Larry, because I, I think it's lost in a lot of people if they weren't like true deadheads. You know, if you were a vendor, if you were in the lot and you were trying to make money on tour, like encore for you is like positioning. It was like, how close to the door can I be to where my car is? So I'm out the door the second the last note is played and I'm instantaneously ready to like set up whatever it is I'm selling. So I was a beer vendor for a long time, which meant that I was out the second the note was gone. So I could have a cooler, you know, basically pushed right up against everyone that walked out and I'd sell, you know, 150 beers in the first 10 minutes after the show ended but that was all about making sure that when the encore started you were making your way to the door and you're sort of catching the encore on your way out specifically because like you were worried about you know how much money can i make before tomorrow night's show right and 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 usually it was a pretty good bet it was just going to be one encore and you could usually pretty predict but you just you know there was the year at alpine valley i think it was 89 and they broke out uh you know um we bid you good night out of nowhere and everybody was like and i guys same thing because to get out of alpine valley the parking lot was a mess and people always wanted to leave early you know and and but you got to stick around until the last the last note is played Yep, I missed uh, a satisfaction in 1992 in the spring, uh, leaving Encore at, uh, at the Cap Center. We all have our stories. It says, you know, it, it's unfortunate when it happens, but, you know, on those nights when you stick around and, and you catch that second Encore, the first second Encore I ever caught was at the uh, 20th anniversary shows at the Greek Theater in 85. The second night, uh, uh, which was pretty pedestrian compared to the other two nights, but they came out for the Encore and played U.S. Blues, and then as we were all starting to get our stuff together to leave, we saw that they weren't leaving and they broke out She Belongs to Me, which was hmm. you know, just pulled me deeper and deeper into Dylan. It was such a, a wonderful tune and so well played. And uh, that was really a lot of fun. So, yeah, you know, that second encore could be a, a good thing if you get it. And, and you got to be careful not to uh, not to run out on it too soon. Hey, we're getting to the end of our time here. I have one more quick uh, Aspen story. Uh, moving from Grateful Dead over to Fish, there was a musician, a singer-songwriter, was staying at the uh, rooming house, the Snow Queen, where I was staying in Aspen, and we got talking, and he was uh, part of uh, Billy Joel's bands at some point. And I said to him, hey, you know, there's a big rivalry between Fish and Billy Joel about who played the most shows. Because I, I know, I know, all, he knows all about that. He doesn't care. But, uh, yeah, there's a big rivalry between Fish and Billy Joel on who's played the most shows at Madison Square Garden. 
But, you know, the best part about that was that right before the Baker's Dozen, <clears throat> when that was going to push Fish past Billy Joel, <clears throat> he was supposedly quoted as saying, they're just a cover band. And that inspired them to come up with over 13 shows. They never repeated a song. I mean, I, I can't even imagine that. I couldn't imagine the dead going 13 shows and not repeating a song. They had 13 nights, no repeats. That's pretty amazing. Yep. There's a there's a great interview with Metallica uh, where Metallica's warming up right after the Baker's Dozen ended and uh, recorded in their practice room where they're just jamming and one of them jokes after they stop playing that wow we sounded like fish there for a second and the other one's like hey did you hear what they just did and someone else like no and then he talks about the fact they didn't play a, a single repeat in 13 nights well, and like everyone stops talking for a second you know I don't know if it's Kirk Hemet or whether it's um, you know uh, Lars but you know someone's like my God like can you imagine us doing that and everyone's like no chance we could do that and these are you know th those guys are as pros pro guests whether you like their music or not it, immaterial but nobody could do it. I, I seriously, I don't think the Dead could have done that. I mean, they had the they had the repertoire, they had the songs if they really wanted to, but I I don't know that Jerry ever had the ability to to carry that many different songs at one time. And I don't know who holds the uh, Madison Square Garden record now, but uh, according to this fella who's in his entourage or in his band, uh, Billy Joel still does a couple of shows a year at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, well, you know, Billy Joel was the song track of my senior year of high school. You know, I mean, he was big that year. We all listened to him a lot and. You know, I'll, you know, piano man and all of that. That's all good stuff. But yeah, it's uh, uh, you, you, what Fish does. You know, it, and we don't talk about Fish a lot these days, and for no other reason, just because there's not a whole lot going on. Um, but we did mention really quick that this uh, the other night on um, dinner and a movie, they played uh, uh, one of the shows from the Island Tour, which was back in '98, I think, right around this time, end of March, beginning of April. And uh, that was my introduction, really, to live fish. I had just started listening to them, and somebody said, listen to the Island Tour. And I got the CDs, and I listened to them. And I was so impressed with the, you know, the, the large number of tunes that they played and how they did it. Um, but, yeah, you know, I mean, this is, this is what jam bands are all about. This is why we go, guys. Well, let's put it in perspective, too. And I, I love Billy Joel, but Billy Joel cannot sell it 13 nights in a row. He can sell it 13 nights over 12 months, you know, and sell out one, one night a month, no problems. But Fish can, Fish can announce tomorrow they're playing 13 nights at MSG, and they'd sell every single one of them out. They could announce 20 nights in a row, and they'd still sell everyone out. So, you know, Billy might have sold more albums over the years, and Billy might have, you know, more star power internationally. There's no way that Billy Joel can do what Fish did uh, three summers ago. No, of course not. And, and I mean, don't forget, for years and years, the Dead were the number one touring band every year, right? They did the most shows. They had the most tour revenue other than that a year when the every other year when the Rolling Stones would go on tour and, and it, you know, it pushed them down into second. But, you know, you, you go out, they tour, they and of course, everybody goes to see them. The Dead used to do that first. They played 10 nights in Madison Square Garden. And, and I used to ask one of my buddies in New York, and he'd say, of course, I'm going to go to all 10. He goes, on any given night, what, what's better than going to a Dead show, you know, five minutes from where you live? Right, right. But yeah, it's hard to argue with that. So as my one of my sons says about the Madison Square Garden fish shows, what, what else are you going to do in New York City for three or four hours for 150 bucks? Right. That's true. And very, speaking very true. of that, uh, we are starting to get shows here in Colorado. I'll plug uh, our son Jack Marty's band. It's a fish tribute band called Kings of Prussia, and they're doing a three-night run, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday run here in Denver this weekend. Excellent. Well, I hope it goes well, and you'll have to tell us about it next week. Give us a, uh, give us a uh, first-hand review. It was funny. I was talking to a guy up in Aspen, and I said, yeah, I mean, my son's in this band. They're called Kings of Prussia. He goes, Kings of Prussia? 
I've seen them. They're really good. I said, yeah, our, our son's the keyboard player. Rand Paul said this? No, it's just a guy I ran into. <laughs> oh, okay. I think most of the, most of the Senate saying it, Larry. It's not just Rand. I think most of the guys on the uh, on that side of the aisle are talking about Kings of Prussia. Hey, you know, there's got to be something to keep them moving. If, if they're boogie into that, then at least you know that makes them a little bit better already. They're all supporters of Wilson's, so you know, it's, uh... Wilson, King of Prussia, absolutely. Exactly. I love that too. Did you on? Um... There was one of the guys I noticed, I can't remember who it was, who was doing commentary during the basketball tournament. And on his shelf in the background, he has the, 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 the volleyball with the handprint from the, from the Tom Hanks movie. It was very, very funny. I like that. From Castaway, I don't know if you remember what Fish did uh, after Castaway came out, but they had uh, Paige's brother coming out looking like Tom Hanks at the New Year's show, holding up the volleyball, and he'd hold it up and the whole crowd would go, Wilson! And they'd put it down, you know, uh, Mike would go, dead end. And hold the volleyball back up. Well, so super creative as, as a take on Castaway and uh, and Game Henge. It's awesome. No, they do all sorts of great stuff. We, we've been saying for the last five minutes we're running out of time and we can't even stop talking amongst ourselves. So, you know, it's, it's this is this is what makes it all great. But let me just start off by saying that this was a great show. Sometimes it's nice when we don't have a guest and it gives us all a chance to. You know, to, to just really, you know, start riffing on stuff like this. It, this is a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. Um, and I had two more things on my list to talk about. And now we can plug them for next week, uh, which is we are running up on the 50th anniversary of the uh, Skull and Roses album, which is the uh, the live Grateful Dead album that came out without really a name. So they called it Skull and Roses. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. Um, and also some interesting uh, information that uh, I learned. Uh, Rob, of course, already knew about it uh, by listening to the Big Steve show uh, about the history of the Wolf guitar. And we did have a pri- we've had a couple of prior episodes talking about Wolf. And in fact, one talking about Jay Blakesburg's role in helping get Wolf out to John Mayer at City Field. Uh, but this is an interesting story about Wolf. So uh, please tune in for that. Uh, Rob, safe travels. I hope all goes well for you. Jim, same to you. Yeah, I uh, just want to say uh, for upcoming shows, next week we're going to be talking about the start of the Europe 72 tour, so it should be a pretty exciting one because obviously everyone's heard you know most of the shows on that, and we've got a great guest in Jerry Griffin that's joining us, uh, another San Diegan, and then uh, the following week we're going to be joined by Andy Bernstein from Headcount and talking about everything that Headcount's doing, uh, you know, using the Grateful Dead and, and getting people to register to vote, so for all of, all of you out in jam band world, uh, I think you're all familiar with Andy, and that'll be a terrific show as well, so we're looking forward to Excellent. both of those. Okay, thank you, sir. Thank you all for listening. Uh, We will look forward to uh, continuing our stories with you next week on the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Uh, Stay healthy and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you all. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host Corey Yelland is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, 
Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.